Yeah, maybe just a little bit. Um, this morning, we are going to continue on in Mark uh, chapter 9. So if you have uh, your copy of the scriptures in front of you, you can turn to Mark 9, starting in verse 30. Let me read this passage of scripture for us. Starting in verse 30, after the police car goes by. Okay. Okay, here we go. Uh, Mark 9, starting in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for On the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let me pray for us briefly one more time. Lord, as, as, as Mark just prayed, this is your word, and, and you have spoken. And so we pray that you would speak to our hearts now through your word preached. And as Trevor mentioned, the, the, the dangers of using platforms and, and ministry as a way to get glory for ourselves, Lord, I, I pray that in no way that that would be the case this morning. My prayer and and our prayer is that you would be seen, that Christ would be lifted up, that together our eyes would be set upon our risen Savior, and that you would glorify him in our hearts. Would you do that this morning? Would you show us how small, how little, how low we are and how great and and mighty and lovely you are. Show us the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start by asking you a question. What is true greatness? 
not only what is it, but how do you pursue it? The, the author of an article that was recently published in the Huffington Post entitled Nine Characteristics of People Destined for Greatness wrote these words. People who become great break past the thinking society tries to place on them. They follow their dreams, accomplish something great, and leave their observers in a state of envy and awe. The rest of the article is a, a list of characteristics that these so-called great people share in common. And the, the list is enlightening, though it is somewhat discouraging. But what's more interesting, I think, and, and more revealing than the characteristics is, is what the author believes accompanies this greatness, the, the, the underlying assumption of what greatness is all about. I think that's the most revealing thing we see in this article is, is the assumption that this author has, an assumption he just expects his readers to share. And the assumption of the author is that greatness is, is all about self-gratifying success. So greatness is all about self-gratifying success. Greatness comes from breaking society's mold and dreaming big and accomplishing something amazing and then reveling as onlookers stand in awe of your accomplishments. In, in other words, greatness is about self-reliance and, and self-realization and self-accomplishment and all of that to the end of self-gratification and self-praise. To put it simply, greatness is all about self. That's, that's the world's definition of greatness. And we, we could cite a number of examples uh, from musicians to movie stars, from tech gurus to talk show hosts, from internet personalities to Instagram celebrities. We've, we've even invented an acronym to help us tag who we think is great. You know what I'm talking about? We call them the GOAT, right? The, they're the greatest of all time. These are the people that even stand out among the greats. So we have this acronym. But, but those we lift up as quote-unquote great says more about what we actually think is great than any inherent greatness the people we confer those titles upon have. And based on those who are considered great, to have achieved greatness in the 21st century, our society defines greatness as those who have achieved a high degree of notoriety through either exceptional or unexceptional accomplishments. They are known, they are praised, they are adored, they are idolized. That's what it means to be great in the world's eyes. While it's easy to, to pick apart an article and a secular understanding of greatness, I want to warn you this morning not to think that you have escaped the world's influence in this regard. You have and I have been shaped more than we realize by this world's estimation of greatness. Not, not only because you're surrounded by it, it's, it's everywhere you turn, right? It's, you, you, you live it, you breathe it. 
but because it appeals to the deepest desire of hearts corrupted by sin, the desire for self-glorification. There is embedded in your soul a desire to be great, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. But, but lurking in your heart, hear me, lurking in your heart is a voice that is whispering to you that you will only know true greatness when you are seen, when your name is praised, when you are recognized, when your praises are sung. And that lie manifests itself in your life a thousand different ways. In our passage this morning, Jesus teaches his disciples what it means to be truly great. Uh, but not in the world's eyes, in, in God's eyes. He, he doesn't discard the pursuit of greatness. Right? There's, there's an inherent worth in that desire in us to be great. Jesus doesn't just throw out this desire for greatness, but, but he radically redefines it. And at no point does, does Jesus' teaching stand in clearer contrast from the world's values than on this issue of greatness. For, for Jesus, true greatness is all about sacrificial and, and selfless service. In verse 35, Jesus sits his disciples down and says, if anyone would be first, that is, if anyone would be great, he must be last of all and the servant of all. That's, the whole, that's, that's my whole point this, this morning. That's the main point of the sermon. True greatness in God's eyes is sacrificial and selfless service. That's what greatness is. It's a relatively simple idea that isn't hard to, to cognitively understand. Like we can get it in our heads, but, but in and of ourselves, it's, it's impossibly hard how to, to learn how to joyfully and humbly live that truth out. And I think sometimes what's, what's most helpful for us uh, are examples. Both good, and, good examples and bad examples can be instructive and helpful for us uh, in, in helping us to obey uh, God's word. And that's uh, exactly what we find here in our passage. Three, three examples, uh, two bad examples and one really good example uh, that I think clarify this kind of selfless and sacrificial service. So, so that's what I want to show you this morning. You tracking with me? What did I say true greatness is? You remember? Selfless and sacrificial service. We're, talk, we're talking about true great. How does God define true greatness? Selfless and sacrificial service. And I'm saying in this passage, there's three examples. There's two bad examples. There's one really good example. That's what I want to show you. Okay, so first, bad example number one. It is, as you may have guessed it, the disciples. Look again at verse 30. It says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, 
What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. After their account, if you were here last week, we saw this account of the disciples with this father who, who, who brings this son uh, who is, is uh, plagued by an unclean spirit. Uh, so after this encounter with the father and his now healthy son, Jesus begins to teach his disciples again precisely and plainly and clearly what it means for him to be the Messiah. This is his second prediction. He states plainly, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. So hard to be much clearer than that, right? Jesus is just spelling it out for them. Jesus has now turned towards Jerusalem and is going to the place of his death. And verse 32 tells us that the disciples, they, they, they didn't get it, right? They, they, they still could not make heads or tails of what Jesus is saying. But you get the sense, right, when you read this, that they know they should get it because they're afraid to ask him, right? This is now the second time that Jesus has said very plainly and, and clearly, this is what it means for me to be the, the Messiah. The Son of Man is going to be handed over. He's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. But after three days, he's going to rise again. But for them, the idea of a suffering Messiah is silly. It's nonsensical. Right? This must be one of Jesus' confusing parables, right? A riddle that we just haven't figured out yet. They're, they're afraid to ask him. So instead of asking Jesus, they turn to one another and they have a different conversation. It's the content of that conversation that lies at the heart of their poor example. Verse 33 tells us that when they arrived at Capernaum, they went into the house, which by the way, it's probably Peter's house. And, and Jesus asked them, uh, so what, what were you guys talking about on the way? And, and you guys know, as well as I do, that Jesus knows exactly what they were talking about. But he asked them to, to give them an opportunity to confess their foolish selfishness. But look at the, ver the beginning of verse 34. It says, they kept silent. Their, their, their silence betrays the fact that they know their conversation was wrong. And they are now overcome by guilt and shame and they stand silent before Jesus. Right? What, what, what was this conversation all about? Verse 34 tells us they kept silent for on the way they were arguing with one another uh, about who among them was the greatest. Just like the conniving Pharisees. Do you remember back, back in Mark 3 when Jesus heals the man with the withered hand and he asked the Pharisees, uh, is, it, is it good uh, to, to, or is it, is it right to do good or to do harm to someone on the Sabbath? And the Pharisees are, are silent. Is it good to take life or to kill? And the Pharisees are silent. And now here, the very 12, the, the one that have traveled with him and are closest to him are responding to him the same way as the Pharisees. He asked them a question, silent, overcome by guilt and shame. If it weren't so sad, it would be comical, right? Remember who, who's among the disciples here. Peter, James, and John. Just a couple weeks ago, Peter, James, and John go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see Jesus revealed in his glory. And on their journey, they decide that 
what's most worthy of their conversation is we need to figure out who among the 12 of us is, is really the best, is really the greatest. Having seen the, the source and substance of power and goodness itself, their hearts are sinfully and selfishly bent inwards toward themselves, fantasizing about their own greatness. What, what, what could be going through their minds? It would be, this is how ridiculous it is. It would be like you standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or standing underneath a starry sky. And everyone that comes by, you're like, yo, guys, how awesome am I? It's ridiculous, right? In front of all that beauty and all that glory, here are the disciples arguing about who is greatest. The reality is that their whole understanding of discipleship and ultimately their understanding of greatness is totally upside down and backwards, right? Jesus' prediction of his death and the disciples' argument is a jarring contrast between Jesus' life of humility and the disciples' desire for status and recognition. Right? For Jesus, discipleship is about surrendering your life. But for the disciples, it's about fulfilling their desires. Right? Jesus would speak of the cost of discipleship. But there the disciples are, are sort of weighing out its benefits and its perks. When they hear Jesus speak of his glorious exaltation and rising, they're all ears. Why do you think that is? Because they think to themselves, surely that means they will get to share in him being elevated. Right? Jesus will be elevated, and that means we'll get to be elevated too, because surely his disciples will be elevated with him. And three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus predicts his own death. And every single time, go back and read it this afternoon, every single time we find the disciples voicing their ambitions for, for status and prominence. You, you see, their thoughts are, are totally bent towards self, towards self-glory, self-adulation, self-praise. And, and, and don't we, brothers and sisters, don't we do the very same thing? It's easy to look at the disciples and point the finger, but don't we do the very, very same thing? We spend so much time thinking about ourselves. Though we would never actually voice these words, our actions show that we believe our lives are most ultimately about us. We are not eager to pour our lives out in selfless and sacrificial service to those around us because that means we're going to have to give up something of ourselves. We're going to have to put the needs and, and wants of others ahead of our own. As soon as we begin to speak of this kind of sacrificial service, this kind of laying down yourself, immediately the heart rises up and says, well, I don't want to be taken advantage of, right? The values of the world, right? Make sure you're caring for yourself. Make sure you have a high self-esteem, self, self, self. But it just doesn't comport with what we find in the New Testament. It doesn't comport with, with, with uh, 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 um, Paul's words in Philippians 2.17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, uh, as, a, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Or, or John's words, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives 
for the brothers. Or Paul's words again in 2 Corinthians 12, 15. I will most gladly, listen to these, these words. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. See, the world would speak of self. Make sure you are taking care of yourself. But, but the scriptures would speak of laying down yourself for the sake of others. Look, nowhere can this sinful reality in our hearts be more clearly seen than in our relationship to other people. That's why Jesus frames it in the the context of relationship. If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. The servant of all what? The servant of all people. You see, our self-absorbed and self-obsessed hearts are seen for what they truly are most clearly against the backdrop of our relationships and how we deal with other people. Is yours a a constant and continual posture of service, of looking to, to lay down your life, of looking to be poured out for the sake of others? Or is it selfish ambition and a, a self-seeking mission to have your needs and your desires met? Husbands. Husbands, do, do, do you love your wife? And, and do, you, do you live like your... Do, 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 do you live like your wife exists? As the, as the person that God has given to you to be personally responsible for meeting your needs? Or do you look at your bride the way Christ looks at his bride? Looking for ways that you can lay down your life for her good. Wives, do, do you live like your husband is the person responsible for realizing all your hopes and dreams in this life? Or are you unwaveringly committed to respecting and loving and supporting him and what the Lord has called him to? Those of you here who are are single, as you pursue a spouse, are you looking for someone who you think checks all your boxes? so that they will meet all of your needs just the right way? Or are you looking for someone that you can commit to laying down your life to serve? And furthermore, single people, as as those that have maybe a little bit more free time and flexibility, are you spending your days and your time and your hours on others or on self? Parents, How often do you relate to your children as if they were your servants and not the other way around? Do do you view your parenting through the lens of your service to your children and ultimately to the Lord? Or do they just exist in your life as, as attachments and accessories who exist to enhance your life? And kids, see some kids, Kids, I know your parents serve you well a lot of the time. They make you meals and they 
clean up after you and they, they tell you stories and they take you to do fun things. And how often do you complain and whine and grumble at your parents? When, when you complain and whine, you're saying to your parents, I'm the most important person and everyone should, should bow down to my preferences. and Everything should happen exactly the way I want it all the time right now in this moment. And mom and dad exist just to serve me and give me what I want. Guys, you have to see this just runs so deep in our hearts. This selfishness, this self-obsession. So often we don't even see it. We, we live in a world that is obsessed with self and, and our deceitful hearts are constantly whispering to us the way of selfishness, not the way of selflessness. Jesus is telling the disciples the most amazing thing that will ever happen in human history and all they can think about is themselves. And, and, and we are no better. So that's bad example number one. Bad example number two. Before we, we go on to a good example, let's let's consider one more bad example. And the next bad example, as you might have guessed again, is the disciples. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This little section helps us drill down a little deeper into what our selfishness is all about. The first thing is that we, the first thing we see is that we have an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Notice that John says the disciples tried to stop this unnamed expeller of demons because, why? What does the text say? He was not following us. Did you, did you catch that? He was not following who? Us. He's not following us. Somehow in John and the disciples' minds, the fault of this man lies not solely in the fact that they're not following Jesus, but in the fact that they're not following them, the the, the disciples. It's as if the the disciples at this point uh, are worthy of being followed, right? You just want to yell at John in this passage like, dude, four seconds ago, Jesus asked you a question and you were silent and had your tail tucked between your legs. And now you're, you're worthy to be followed? What's wrong with, with what is going on in their minds? Clearly, John and the disciples at this point have an exaggerated sense of, of self-importance and worth. But again, John and the disciples are not alone in this. Right, right? Every human being, listen, every human, you this morning, me this morning, every human being that has ever existed, including you and me, has sinfully overestimated their importance. Ouch. That stings a little bit. Do you know why it stings a little bit, though? It stings a little bit because when someone comes to you and says, 
you're not as important as you think you are, your flesh and your heart starts to rise up and argue. Like, no, 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 I am important. Don't, you can't tell me I'm not important. I am important. I do lots of important things. Don't you know who I am and what I do? I am important. But, but can you see here how John and the rest of the, the disciples view their discipleship not as a, a gift of God's grace to them? Right? You, you have to understand something about our worth. I'm not saying that we, we aren't worthy or that we don't have value. But the idea is that our, our value is not inherent to us. It's bestowed on us. It's given to us. It's, it's conferred on us by God. And so we should be humble. The disciples think that, that their discipleship, that, that they've forgotten that their discipleship is, is, is just the unbridled expression of God's grace in their lives. They, they were picked not because there was something inherently valuable in them. That they view their discipleship as a mark of their elevated status, as if they had earned their place as one of the twelve. Brothers and sisters, we as Christians should be among the humblest people on planet Earth. Why? Because we know that everything we have has been given to us. What do you have that you have not received? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Do you realize that you bear, if you are in Christ this morning, you bear the highest title a human being can bear? Child of God. Bond servant of Christ. Ambassador of It is literally the highest title a human being can have in God's world. And you have that title freely because of his grace. It's not a title you earned. It's not a title you worked for. It's a title that he graciously and lovingly bestowed on you. And when you see yourself truly as, as the scriptures see you as a, a poor beggar, hopeless and helpless before God, but who has abundantly received grace, upon grace in the person of Christ, that there's no room for an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Right, Your sense of importance becomes wholly tied to your union with Christ, to your identity in Christ. But it's not just that we selfishly make everything about us. It's not just that we have exaggerated our own sense of self-importance it's that we've forgotten who all of this actually is about. The disciples are concerned that this guy is, is doing works in Jesus' name, but that he wasn't formally on Team Jesus, if you will. But look how sneaky this is. Do, do you think the disciples are really concerned in this passage about Jesus' reputation? They're not. What has happened in the past couple texts? In the, in the last week, the disciples are struggling, failing miserably to cast out demons. And now here this nobody comes. Not officially on Team Jesus. He's not, he's not a part of the group. And he's casting demons out left and right, 
Easily, no problem, in Jesus' name. How embarrassing for them. It's their own reputation they're worried about. This guy is showing them up. And so John goes to Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, are you going to stand for this? And Jesus is like, yep. Yes, I am. Look at verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus is saying, it sounds, could be a little confusing, don't overcomplicate it, right? Jesus is saying, look, if he's doing these things in my name, he's not just going to turn around and then slander me, right? All this, this is about my name being proclaimed anyway, right? Do you see what he's saying to, to John and the disciples? He's saying, John, disciples, this isn't about you. It's not about you. It is about my name being proclaimed, though. C.S. Lewis observed that, that if you asked modern Christians what the highest virtue is, they would probably say selflessness. Then he goes on to say, if you were to ask one of the ancients what the highest virtue is, they would say love. And I think, as is often true, the ancients are, are right here. You see, selflessness is not an end in itself. Selflessness is the necessary byproduct when you truly love the Lord and other people. See, what the disciples have forgotten here is that it's not only not about them, but it is about Christ. It is supremely and preeminently about him. And sometimes we just need to hear those blunt words from Jesus, right? Your life, and hear these words, your life is not about you. It's not about your name being praised. But we also need to hear the other side of that coin. It's not about you because it is about him. Because all of your life is about him receiving glory and his name being praised. And brothers and sisters, that's really, really good news for us. Right? That's, that's, that's sort of what's underneath Jesus' argument with the disciples here. For those that love Jesus, the fact that it's not about them and that it is about Jesus is really good news. Why should John and the disciples be suspicious and envious of this guy? They should be rejoicing. Great works are being done, and Jesus is getting the credit. Wonderful. That's what we want anyway. That's what we want. We want Jesus to be seen. We want Jesus to be lifted up. We want to decrease. We want him to increase. Look at verse 41. For truly, I, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Verse 41, the, 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 what is the condition for not losing your reward? It's offering even the humblest service, even the smallest service, bringing a cup of water because someone belongs to Christ. Do, do you see? It's because in that little act of service, Jesus is made much of. It's about him being seen. But, but envy and jealousy creep into even the hearts of believers when they make it about them and not about Christ. Have you noticed a spirit of competition, a spirit of, of rivalry among different churches or even in your own heart with other Christians? 
That's a, that's a real danger. Let's just be honest for a moment. It's a real danger for church plants. Right? I'm not trying to diminish theological, theological concerns uh, that we would have with other churches. Don't get me wrong. There, there are lots of dead churches in South Jersey who have abandoned the gospel. But are we quick? Are we quick to rejoice when other churches prosper, when other churches who faithfully preach the gospel grow, and when God blesses them? Are, are we quick to rejoice when fellow Christians grow in grace and prosper in Jesus? We, we should be. We should be. Why? Why? Because it's Jesus' name that is being hallowed. His church that's being built, is, it's his glory that's being spread. And that's ultimately what we want. Amen? I don't know. Yes, amen? That's what we want. We want Jesus' name to be hallowed. But wherever there is a spirit of, of selfish, over-exaggerated self-importance, a spirit of, of boasting that forgets that all that we have has been given to us and a, and a failure to remember that we must ultimately exist for the sake of Jesus' name, there will be jealousies and rivalries and dissensions. But on the other hand, where there is a spirit of humility that longs for Jesus to be seen, that longs for Jesus' name to be hallowed, there will be an abundance of selfless and sacrificial service. So fortunately, our passage also gives us a, a beautiful example of this humble and sacrificial spirit in the person of Jesus. Indeed, we see here, the, the, the greatest example of this selfish and sacrificial service. Look at, at verse 35. It says, And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus sits down the way a rabbi, the way a, a, a teacher would sit down with his students. And as they gathered around to listen, Jesus begins to define greatness in, in a way that is uh, like they had never heard before. You see, in rabbinic literature, uh, there were volumes. Ink had been spilt all over the place on the issue of rank. And, and order. The, the, the religious elite believed that there was an order to things in paradise and that that order needed to be reflected on earth. So they were dedicated to making sure things were done in, in proper order, right? The hierarchy needed to be maintained. Rank must be emphasized. Isn't that twisted how they could take their bad theology and justify their sort of own superiority complex. That's the world the disciples are living in, a world where the most religious among them were obsessed with being first. But Jesus turns to them and says, if you want to be first, you need to be last, and you need to be the servant of all. That word servant is the Greek word uh, diakonos, and it most literally means a waiter of tables. When who brings you your food. 
No one in the first century Jewish culture saw service as a sign of greatness, right? It's the exact opposite. It's the, it's the people that are being served that are the great ones. But Jesus says, no, true greatness is the one who makes himself last and who becomes the servant of all. And so to sort of drive this point home, Jesus gives them a kind of enacted parable. He, he takes a child in his arms and says, whoever receives one such child receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. In order to sort of understand what's going on here, you need to understand where children sort of fit in into the, the, the pecking order in Jewish society. And, and let me tell you, it's very low. Uh, the children in the first century were uh, not grown enough to contribute. They were seen as a, a liability. And they were viewed among the most as insignificant. We do the opposite, by the way. right? We idolize our children. But here, the, the, they devalue their children. They're, they're really only valuable in so much as they can produce. But now Jesus comes along and, and puts a child in the midst of them. By the way, if this is Peter's house, it's probably one of Peter's children. So he, he, the, the, you, you can imagine the disciples are probably thinking, like, what, what does Jesus want with this kid? Like, what is he doing? But then Jesus takes the child in his arms. The idea is that he embraces the child. He, he embraces him. He gives this child his full attention. He lowers himself to the child. And for that moment, Jesus' body language says to the child, you are the most important thing to me right now. Lindsay and I always say when we have people over the house, you know, for, for lunch or for dinner or whatever, we always say that we, we really appreciate it when people don't just talk at our kids, but when they talk to our kids. You know, they sort of like get down on their level and ask them questions and, and don't just talk at them. And I, I'm guilty of that, right? Sometimes I just talk at my kids. But Jesus receives and embraces this child who in the disciples' estimation is just the, the lowest of the low. There's nothing in it for Jesus. There's no reputation to be gained. There's, there's no value to be had. It's just a, a it's just a selfless and sacrificial act of service. And so here Jesus' call to the disciples isn't like it is in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, if, you're, if you go back and read, it's a kind of parallel passage. Jesus called to his disciples to be humble like a child. Right? But here the call isn't to be like the child, it's to be like Jesus, who receives the lowliest of the low. To receive the insignificant without thought of recompense, without thought of recapitulation or, or, uh, or, or reciprocation or, or payment. And the wonder of all this is that Jesus then says, when you receive those who are insignificant in the world's eyes with no thought of yourself, you're really performing the highest service you can perform because you're doing it to Jesus. You're receiving Jesus. And in receiving Jesus, you're receiving the one who sent him. This is the kind of service that God sees and rewards. Did you notice in verse 41 that there is this promise of reward? The one who selflessly and sacrificially serves will by no means lose their reward. We were made to receive 
commendation, if you will. Do you remember in the beginning when I said our definition of, of greatness is people who are uh, notorious, if you will, that are recognized by the masses? We, we are people who are made to be commended, but it's not the commendation of men. It's the commendation of God. That, that's the reward that will satisfy. That, that's the reward that we should ultimately be after, the approval and the commendation of God, not of men. Now, if that's where we were to stop, th- this would be among the most hopeless sermons ever preached. Do you, do you understand what the scriptures are calling you to this morning? The the scriptures are calling you to absolutely die to yourself. To to give yourself utterly and completely in loving service to others for the glory of God. Jesus has given the supreme example of what that looks like. And the scriptures are calling you to follow that example. Perfectly. But what you need to understand, and this this is the biggest thing I want you to walk away with this morning. What you need to understand this morning is that you can never and will never, you can never and will never follow Jesus' example of service unless you have first been the object of his service. In other words, you will never faithfully and joyfully serve Jesus or others in this way unless you have first been served by Jesus. Let me say it one more time. You will never faithfully and joyfully serve Jesus or others in this way unless you have first been served by Jesus. You see, Jesus' service isn't merely a model for us to pass, pa- uh, pattern our lives after. It is that, right? Jesus is the su- supreme example of what it is to, to humble yourself, to make yourself low and to serve. And yet, it is far more than that. Jesus' service to us is the source of our very life in him. Right Before we are those who are called to serve Christ and serve others, we are those who must be served by Christ in his life and in his death and resurrection. At the heart of your failure to serve isn't a lack of education, it's not a a lack of self-esteem or even the lack of good examples in your life. At the very core of your failure is a heart that is bent on self-rule, on denying God's claim on you and living for yourself. This is the very substance of sin. And and while the disciples were discussing among themselves who was the greatest among them, the one who can truly claim to be the greatest, the one who can truly claim to be the greatest, had come into the world to serve them by meeting their greatest need. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Consider for a moment the inherent greatness of Jesus. Consider for a moment the inherent greatness. That's kind of a generic word, right? Great. We just say, ah, that's great. I'm talking about the majesty, 
the glory, the worth of Jesus. Consider for a moment the inherent worth of Jesus. Earlier this morning we sang, God, you are high, higher than any other. We sang, you are high and lifted up and all the world will praise your great name. Jesus is the eternal son of God, the image of the invisible God, the one for whom and through whom all things were created, the one who is before all things and who holds all things together. He is the one who was just transfigured before them, the one who is the very radiance of the glory of God. It's this very one. It's this very one who is unspeakably and unimaginably great who takes on flesh and becomes the promised servant that we read about in Isaiah 49. He is the one that we read of in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God. I know it's familiar, but hear it again. Hear it again as if you've never heard these words. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clung to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In a few moments, we'll sing, a king, a servant came to be, born to set the captives free. Oh, the beauty of this man. How is it that those two titles are in the same sentence? A king, a servant came to be. He, he is the sent one of God, sent by God for this very purpose. Brothers and sisters, the son of man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. Who are you that the eternal God, the eternal son of God should come into the world to serve you? His service, of course, is first to his heavenly father, but he truly comes into the world to serve and to save sinners. He comes into the world to die and, and, and not merely to die at the hands of evil men. Did, did you notice that in Jesus' second prediction, he adds a little phrase? If you go back in the, and read his first prediction and then read his second prediction, you'll see he adds a little phrase. He will be delivered up into the hands of men. That's what we call a divine passive, right? Who is the one doing the delivering? Who is the one delivering up Jesus? Mark would have us infer God, the Father. It's God the Father who delivers him up into the hands of men. It's God who sends him into the world. It's God who, who delivers him up to be nailed to a cross. It's God who pours out the full weight of his judgment. On, on sin, on our sin, taken upon Christ. And all this to, to, to serve you. Is there some inherent worthiness in you that you should be served by Jesus? That, that he should lower himself to serve you? Of course not. You are as the insignificant child who Jesus embraces in his arms. Not because of the greatness of your worth, but because of the greatness of his grace and the greatness of his love. And in his embrace, there is the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, sonship, acceptance, the approval and commendation of God, the sure promise of eternal life. 
Brothers and sisters, when you have known Jesus, when you have known Jesus as the one who serves you by giving his life for yours, then and only then are you enabled and empowered to to truly give your life in service to others. And not as a means to pay Jesus back, right? Not as a means to prove that you are worthwhile after all, but out of the overflow of your love and your gratitude towards him. It's only when you have been served by Jesus that your heart cries out, how deserving of praise, how deserving of honor, how deserving of a life poured out. How deserving of our lives poured out in selfless and sacrificial service. Brothers and sisters, that is is true greatness. Let's, Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have indeed sent your son into this world that he has come in the form of a servant and has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. Lord, we pray that as we look into the beauty and the wonder and the greatness and the humility of Jesus, and when we see him who is worthy of all praise, worthy of all glory, and worthy of all all honor, stooping down, making himself low, humbling himself, and taking our sin on his back, that our hearts would overflow with love, gratitude, and a desire to be poured out for the sake of others, all for the glory of your name. Would you do this in our hearts? Would you you embolden us and strengthen us and equip us to serve one another, to serve wives, to serve husbands, to serve children, to serve those in our community, to serve. And to do it in in a way that seeks commendation from you and not from men. Lord, help us to have hearts that long that, that, that we should decrease and that Christ Jesus should increase. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.